Kato Shu, Entangling Vines, Case 14, Chosho's Chaos. Chosho asked Leon Shigon, what about the time of primordial chaos before any differentiation? Leon answered, a pillar conceives. Chosho said, what about after differentiation? Leon responded, it's like a wisp of cloud marking the great pure sky. Chosho asked, does the great pure sky accept this mark or not? Leon didn't answer. Chosho continued, if that were so, living beings would not come forth. Again, Reun did not answer. Chosho continued, how about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided? Reun replied, that would be holding to eternal truth. What is holding to eternal truth? Chosho asked. It is like the infinite luminosity of a mirror, said Reun. Is there then a transcendence even of this? asked Chosho. There is, replied Reun. What is this transcendence? Chosho asked. Reun said, Smash the mirror then you and I can meet. Chosho then asked, at the time of primordial chaos, before any differentiation, where do living beings come from? Rayon answered, it is like a pillar conceiving. It's a wonderful time right now. It is five years that Joshua Roshi has passed away. We are on the third day after his passing. But we still come together and we practice together. There is something that outlives individuals in this tradition, in the Zen tradition, the Rinzai Zen tradition. While we might come to this practice in the beginning as people who are individuals and are seeking specific goals, may it be alleviating our own suffering, may it be our drive to help others to overcome their suffering, may it be the bad E-word, enlightenment, awakening, wisdom, whatever you may think. We usually arrive here as seekers who are drawn to it. And that's where we all start. That's where Joshu Roshi started. That's where his teacher, Miura Joten Roshi started, and his teacher, Matsubara Vanryo. And so goes back, 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 
the whole lineage, the whole Keidai temple, back to the historical Buddha. One of the really important things about that that I remind myself of all the time is that this going back to Siddhartha is one of the most important points of this practice. And I deliberately say Siddhartha, not the Buddha, because even Siddhartha came as an individual, as a seeker who underwent all different kinds of practices to learn about the human condition. After having been sheltered from most of the inconvenience of a life without means, he discovered once he left this shell of the palace, he discovered old age, sickness, and death, but also encountered on the same trip a holy man or maybe a holy woman showing him that there is a way for us human beings who have been born into this condition to undertake a journey that is not dictated by our own fixation on I am, I am, I need, I need, I like, I like, I don't like, I don't like. So often when I refer to this practice and people ask, I say, yes, it is Buddhism. It is actually the practice of the Buddha himself, the practice that brought Siddhartha to sit under the tree and to awaken. And all of us, we are so fortunate to have encountered this teaching personified in most of our cases here, at least those who have been here when Joshu Roshi was teaching, was through the person of Enkyoshitsu, Kyozan Joshu. In this session, we requite the beneficence. We pay forward what we have so generously received. And it's not just intangible. You are sitting on cushions. We are sitting on tans. We are sitting in a structure that solely has this purpose of conducting Zen practice. And without the work of Joshu Roshi, it would not even be here. Sometimes we might feel, oh, I don't want to go to the Zen center. When I go, it will be there. But that's actually not true. In this society, to establish a place like Rinzai-ji, like Mount Baldi Zen Center, like all the other centers that had affiliation with Joshu Roshi and his teaching, is a major undertaking with true pioneer spirit. When Joshu Roshi arrived, his English was not very good. And we could argue that it did not improve much. But nonetheless, even without having to give big speeches, convince people of this or that, 
the presence of his being and his practice is what became manifest in these walls, windows, floors, and the way we do things. So for that, I am deeply grateful. We should never take it for granted. Besides gratitude, who on repaying our Dharma debt means also that we have to practice ourselves full-heartedly and throw ourselves into it without holding anything back. I know it might seem very formal here at times. How can you let go when it is formal? But this is what we figure out over the many years of arduous Zen practice that actually the form allows us to open up and to let go of protections, to let go of those mind activities that without questioning affirm our individual existence. If during the session you encounter challenges, you feel something that is uncomfortable, then it is working. This is what session is made to make us feel. It is not that we have a choice what those feelings are, but it makes us feel things that we usually do not even notice. Our independence is curtailed, which means that our I am self that wants to do this and doesn't want to do that, that's hungry, that's tired, and all of these, I need this, I need that, will be exposed. And don't be discouraged by seeing that side of yourself. It is the only way to learn what and how this human condition actually works. We may be sitting here in a very busy city where the sirens blare, where raccoons are being caught on the roof of the very structure in which we are supposed to meditate. But again, this is not about blissing out and going somewhere else where there are no raccoons, where there are no ambulances, no helicopters. In the opposite, it is to become completely embracing all that, what we could call chaos. It seems unordered from the point of view of a nicely arranged two-dimensional point of view of this and that, of I and you, of good and evil, plus and minus. It seems very chaotic. Yet, this practice and the spherical, 360-degree, multidimensional awareness that settles in through Zazen shows us something completely different. So the case today is case number 14 from the Shumon Katoshu. Traditionally, when giving a talk about Zen, a lot of people who are asked to do that, follow the cases of a specific collection. You probably know the most important koan collections in the Rinzai school are 
the Mumon Khan, the gateless gate, with 48 cases, and also the Hekigandoroku, the blue cliff record, with over 100 cases. These collections were written in medieval China by the Chan masters. And it's not just the cases, but also commentaries. Mumon Eikai Zengi commented on the cases of the Mumon Khan, the gateless barrier. The Blue Cliff record, as we all know, was compiled by Seicho Juken, Engo Kokugon, who was a successor to Goso Hoen, who we will encounter in one of the cases in a couple of days, added more commentaries. The Koan collection from which this case today is taken is the Shumon Katoshu, which means entangling vines. Entangling vines means, in the Zen tradition, something very specific. It has to do with koans, words and thinking that entangle our minds, that make our vision with our Dharma eye sometimes not so clear. But in order to clear up and to disentangle those vines, these cases are presented. The Shumon Katoshu has over 200 cases. The difference to the Mumon Khan and to the Hekigan Roku, the Blue Cliff Record and the Gateless Barrier, is that there is no commentary in the Shumon Katoshu. So today, case number 14, and I already touched on chaos a little bit. What is also the tradition when we look at cases like this, we present the dramatis personae. So who is it who appears here? And there's a count of two characters. The first character is Chosho. Chosho, and I will be using the Japanese pronunciation of the names because the Shumon Katoshi, as a Japanese source, I would like to use the Japanese names and not the Chinese. Also, I don't know how to pronounce the Chinese names correctly. Maybe one day I will be able to learn it. But this character, Chosho, we don't know anything about him but his name. And that he asks the questions in this case number 14. In the entirety of the 280 plus cases of the Shumon Katoshu, Chosho only appears once. You probably read it in Ishitami Zazen, and you might have gathered from that that Chosho asks a lot of questions. Now, who is the second person? Reion Shigon. Reion Shigon, we know a little bit more about Reion Shigon. We know that he lived in the ninth century. And with the Chinese Zen masters, it goes like this, that they have their monk's name, but when they take residence in a specific place, in a specific temple, or as it's said in Chinese, in a specific mountain, they take on the name of the mountain. Reion was the name of the place where Shigon taught. If you have been around a little bit here at Rinzai-ji, Reyun sounds very familiar. Reyun, Reyun, what do we know about Reyun? Some of you were able to go on a pilgrimage to Japan with Noritake Roshi and to meet him at his sub-temple of Nyoshinji in Kyoto. The name of that sub-temple is Reyun-in. 
It's exactly the same characters as the characters for De and Shigong. Spirit cloud, Re spirit, Un Kumo cloud. Also on the Butsudan here on the right hand side, if you don't know who this gentleman is, it's the predecessor of Noritake Shunan Roshi as the abbot of Reonin, that is Yamada Mumon Roshi. So Reyun is known in the Zen circles just for basically one thing, and that is a poem that he wrote when he experienced awakening. And that poem is cited either as a whole poem, but sometimes just individual lines in various contexts. And Shumokato Shu, case number eight, actually also deals with that poem. How did Reun Shigon awaken? What was the circumstance? One day, he saw peach blossoms. And it struck his deepest core. And he wrote the poem that in English goes like this. For 30 years, I sought a sword master. How many times have leaves fallen and new buds appeared? But since having seen the peach blossoms, I have never doubted again. This is Reon's poem. Reon himself was a successor to Isan Reyu. And Isan was a successor to Hyakujo Eikai. Hyakujo had 41 Dharma successors. Isan Reyu was one of them. So in the case that we have today, there's this interchange between Chosho and Reyun. And of course, it strikes me as very, very timely that this case comes up right now. When I started giving these talks about koans, I committed to go through the entire Shumon Katoshu case by case. So this is like a forced diet. There's no menu where I can say, well, today I feel like case number 67. No. Today is case number 14, because the last time I gave a talk, it was case number 13. And guess what the next time will happen? It will be case number 15. We'll see how, how fast we can go with this one here. It's, it's rather long. We might have to take two days, but we will see. So here's Chosho, and he asks the question. What about the time of primordial chaos before any differentiation? Students of Josu Roshi hear the reference to zero, the root source the root source, either the ultimately small or the ultimately large. Zero, where there is primordial chaos, chaos from the point of view of a two-dimensional mind, chaos from the point of view of a flat world. Joshu Roshi always would say, we shouldn't look at his teaching 
and our lives and the practice of Zen from a point of view of two dimensions. He called it a flat-faced world or place, a flat-faced place. Him and Joe, a flat-faced two-dimensional world. But in this primordial state that here is translated as chaos, before any differentiation, we have that place where everything is as a potential already there. Joshua Rossi sometimes said it is the cosmos is pregnant with the 10,000 things, with all beings that come forth once that differentiation happens. So what about that place before any differentiation, asks Joshua. And Rayon answers, a pillar conceived. Now, this is the influence of the Chinese culture. That pillar, the characters for pillar here, usually refer to something that supports an entire building that is exposed in its entirety and provides the strength to hold everything up. What Rayon is saying here is that that what makes all of this possible, conceives and conception is that place where you have heard probably Joshu Roshi talk a lot about how in that primordial state where there is the exact number of women as there are men, where there are these seeds of the potential of the entire world, but where then this kind of polarization happens in itself. There's always movement in there. That movement leads to the conception of the potential of the world we are living in. Thinking about it and relating it to what Joshua Rossi has taught is one way of doing it, but it's also really, really important that while we spend our time here on the cushion, that we come to the experience what actually is meant by this. And whoever you may ask, every spiritual teacher who follows an introspective path like this will say to you that these are the words that describe, that express the experience of someone who has seen, who has felt, who has been there. But it cannot be taken as more than that. It's not an explanation. It cannot substitute for our own looking into this, as I said, with our full heart, our full mind, our full body, all together. It's not that we have to seek for something that fits these words. It is that these words, once we have certain depth in our zazen, once we are able to let go of a lot of the conditioned thinking of that what we call our own personality, of that what we call the awareness of an individuality, and get to the world of intuition, then these words have to be filled out from the inside, not from the outside. 
and they will fill, and you will find your own words at some point, and you will be called to speak to it. To speak to it, not necessarily in the way that I'm speaking to you now, but to speak to it from the point of view of an authentic, living, true human being whose words, whose actions, whose life expresses that deep knowledge of this primordial chaos and the whole process that unfolds around it. If you listened to Joshu Roshi's Teisho's, there is a narrative that repeats over and over again. And it is wonderful to encounter a case like this here that puts different words to that same narrative. And as such, this is a wonderful place for us to gain some closeness to the tradition and to see that so many different people expressed exactly the same thing in a different way, in the way that their conditions of appearing in this world from that same source, from that same primordial chaos without differentiation, brought them forth, brought us forth. We all are unique, which also means we all will have to find our own expression of authentically living that truth of this activity of Dharma that is described here. So this pillar conceives not externally. There's not a little fly that comes and touches like a flower, the bee. No, it just conceives spontaneously out of itself. And Josho continues to ask, what about after differentiation? There is a point where this breakup must happen, where that pillar not only has conceived but gives birth. It is a story that we human beings really know about in our navel, in our hara. We know about it, how that works, because it's the reason why we are here, why we see, hear, smell, touch, feel, intuit, for that very reason. And in culture, we find it in various places. There's a very old Jewish teaching where that perfect, completed whole breaks apart and the parts shatter all over. And it becomes the job of the followers of that teaching to put it all together, to make it whole again. This is not very different from the teaching of the Buddha, the teaching of the Dharma activity, Tathagata Zen, thus come, thus gone, the breaking apart and the bringing together again, individuation, differentiation, unification after it. Quite common in various cultures, in various religious narratives. And Chosho asks, what about after differentiation? And Rayon responds, it's like a wisp of cloud marking the great pure sky. 
the great pure sky appears also all over the Zen literature. It's one of the great marks, the purity of the sky, luminous, without limits, vast openness, nothing holy. The same thing described in Hakuin Zenji's Zazen Wasan, how glorious the luminous sky of Samadhi. And there are clouds in that sky. Clouds, of course, are a wonderful metaphor that we can use in the Zen context in so, so many ways. Sometimes our minds, our hearts are clouded. And the fact is you cannot grasp a cloud. Try to grasp a cloud, not with our hands, but maybe there's another way to clear that cloudiness from our minds. But the cloud also describes us as being non-fixated. Even if you look at it scientifically, you could say it is just a bunch of water molecules in a specific condition. A cloud is an event, an event in a much, much larger activity again, just like the activity of Dharma. The water evaporates invisibly. It becomes part of the great sky. And when it congregates together, it turns into a cloud. If it gets really, really dense, we'll have rain. And the rain falls onto the earth and gives nourishment. It allows the plants to grow, the animals to appear, human beings and then evaporates again. Again, the teaching of this constant, always changing activity is evident in many of these koans, in the teaching of Tathagata Zen, in the teaching of so many other wisdom traditions. After differentiation, it's like a wisp of cloud marking the great pure sky. Chosho asked again. He really wants to go and get to the bottom of it. Does the great pure sky accept this mark or not? Rayun did not answer. If you look at the sky and you see a cloud, what kind of state of mind do you have to have to ask a question like that? Accepting and rejecting. Accepting and rejecting can only happen if we are invested in a point of fixation from which we accept and reject. When we sit on the cushions here and the pain comes in our legs, as soon as the I am self starts asserting itself, I don't like pain. Actually, it's just a feeling. It is sensation. It is that not liking it that turns it into pain. And the more we dislike it, the more we push against it, the more we reject it, the more painful it will become. And we end up doing just what the Buddha said about life. What is the first noble truth? All life is suffering. Suffering is such a bad word. Maybe it's incomplete. It is not satisfying. There's more to be had. 
or something to be pushed away. But here in this description, does the great pure sky accept this mark or not? No answer. Do you get it? Chosho continued. If that were so, living beings would not come forth. Again, Rayun did not answer. There's nothing to be said about it. Let me put this in this way to give you a simile. A Zen student and another visitor in a museum are standing in front of a wonderful painting that is just magnificent. And the Zen student is completely absorbed. The other visitor standing next to her, looking at the painting, how beautiful, how beautiful. And the Zen student, she turns to him and says, indeed, but what a shame to say so. That is a very specific kind of silence that we learn to appreciate, that we learn to connect with. In fact, everything, once our cognitive stream turns into a bubbling brook, part of everything that we experience with our human mind, it is silent. It is silent, and the word for that that we hear in many cases of the Surosis was muni, the silence that is manifest in everything, even if it may be very, very loud. Chosho continued, how about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided? What about that? When we listen to koans, when we read koans, when we read about Zen in general, there is a good amount of parsing the words that can be very helpful. So in the statement here, how about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided? Is this the classical setup of a trap? How often in your mind do you end up in circular thoughts? Oh, if this only were like that, then I would be more happy. If only this person would do this and that, I could be blah, blah, blah. If only Trump were not president, then eat, 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 eat. So all kinds of things like that are just like this question here. How about when there's only absolute purity and all stains are avoided. First of all, what is absolute? In the description that we have gone through now, we are halfway through this koan. So far, there is really nothing that is absolute. The only thing that we can see so far, I hope, and understand from that is that there is continuous movement, continuous change. And there's a word for that in the teaching of the Buddha. Anicca, mujo in Japanese, impermanence. Impermanence as the big motor that makes the movement from that primordial pillar that conceives to that sky that does not reject anything, 
or as Joshu Roshi would call it, the activity of Dharma. And it works, as we have heard so often, and as we can see in this example here as well, so far there is no will, there is no desire expressed here, there is no judgment, there are no words to describe it, hence Leon's answer in absolute silence. Without will and desire. Ishi yokyu nashi. That's what Joshuroshi used to say. That activity of change, the activity of impermanence, the activity of dharma, call it the activity of time, the activity of nature works without will and desire. In Zazen, when your breath flows in and flows out, learn to come close to that activity of the Dharma that works without will and desire, but at the same time manifests in a very, very specific way in this world of opposites. Hence, we have inhalation and exhalation. But what is it that we can find out in our investigation that is the underlying reality of that condition? When we as human beings start to fixate, to judge, to like and dislike, things become difficult. The third ancestor, Sosan Danchi Zenji, wrote a poem that's called Unbelieving in Mind, Jin Jin Mei. And it starts out with the very famous line that you find it also in many koans, especially Joshu Jushin, the old Joshu, the Joshu with the dog and moo, quoted it a lot, and it is, the highest path is not difficult, just don't pick and choose. Find in your zazen where you attach, where you judge, where you accept, where you reject. And bore down to that place where that comes from. It's a fantastic adventure that can last a lifetime. So tomorrow we'll look the second half of this rather long koan and see what will happen after we have this differentiation, after the unity breaks apart, will we be able to put it all together again to make it whole? Will we be able to find out that that wholeness, even though broken apart, is always the underlying present suchness of our human experience. Please don't be distracted by anything. Don't think that anything is a distraction. If something annoys you, rather than rejecting it, find out why it is. Because it is right here that what you objectify, that what irks you. And by the very fact 
of it being here. We have to learn to see that what we might avoid really as much as we can carries in it the greatest opportunity for us to learn, to let go, to mature, to embrace. And tomorrow we shall continue with the second half of case 14 of the Shumon Katoshu. Thank you.